the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome back. As we head into Hour 3, it's a delight to have back in studio John Shattuck, former Congressman John Shattuck. He used to represent Arizona's uh, old 4th Congressional District, did so for 16 years. He is the head of Shattuck Associates, S-H-A-D-E-G-G, if you're looking for him online. Uh, we didn't have you in last week because we had a special uh, for the um, for the debate. Uh, and uh, so uh, apologies for not having you, but great to have you back, John. No, no problem, and it was by far the best it debate was. yet. It really, it really was. was. It really was. Yep. I got to tell you, I think um, in a weird way, and the NBC anchors played against type and did better than the Fox anchors, and I think helped. I think it, they did. Yeah, it helped that they didn't allow the, the, back, the backs and forths, the re- responses to any that old rule that if someone's name is invoked, you get to respond. I think by eliminating that rule, it led for a better debate, clarified the field a little bit. clearly a better debate. Maybe the candidates were slightly better behaved, at Maybe, least yeah. late in the yeah, debate. Yeah. Uh, but it was more informative. You know, it's interesting, though. It, is it, a, is it, is it a, a tale full of sound and fury signifying nothing? I'll leave out the middle part. Because we know who the nominee is going to be, or is it possible we don't know who the nominee is going to be? Here's the thing. Donald Trump is polling about, what, 50 percent, and uh, no one is anywhere close. It tells us, naturally, that there's another 50 percent-ish, 40 to 50 percent, in the Republican uh, voters' field that doesn't want Trump or is looking at least at some of the other candidates or showing initial support for the other candidates there's four left standing. Um, this goes on and on. To what end? I don't know. It, it, it's not, and it's not as if each of those four come from the same perspective, so that you could have a unified candidate representing that non-Trump fifty percent. They all kind of have a different angle and read in the conservative movement on the Republican Party. Vivek Ramaswamy is not like Ron DeSantis. Nikki Haley is not like any of them, and Chris Christie is kind of a just a his own thing. Um, so it's not like they could get together or their donors could get together and say, OK, three of you got to go and we got to satisfy the other than Trump candidacy with one other candidate. That would in its own right make sense, but it's not it can't possibly happen. I'm I'm, I'm not sure what you think about any of this. Um, it may all be fruitless anyway. I mean, I think Donald Trump is the nom- I think he's the nominee. You are, of course, right that they are each different. They each have their spheres of expertise uh, and you can talk about each of them kind of uh, seriatim and decide which one of them you like. And it might be because you are, care about a particular issue. You can say, well, uh, uh, Nikki Haley clearly knows foreign policy better than, and fill in the blank, maybe better than any of them. That said, the overwhelming thought I had throughout the whole debate was how st- Stunningly much better they all are. Mm-hmm. Uh, and even back then when it was two more, uh-huh. uh, they all are than Biden. I mean, he's just so awful. And, you know, I'd, it'd be fun to go back. I think I said on this show months ago that I did not think Biden would be the nominee. Yeah. 
And I got to say, I still don't. And I, I think he's going to be maneuver at, at a, I think the most likely scenario is that he's going to be maneuvered out of the way by his own party at a time when they think they can, the last minute they think they can get away with it and substitute somebody that has a real chance of defeating whoever the Republican is. That said, um, I kind of think, well, I know my dad would be laughing at us if he knew we were all this serious. I'm not sure there was ever uh, a raft of candidates running against someone as far ahead as Trump is. But Trump is so mercurial that you just you just don't know when he's going to explode. This last weekend, he makes some comments that offend a lot of people. Maybe they don't offend his base, uh, but he has not had to get out and campaign. He's barely campaigning. He's almost in the basement like uh, Biden was. Uh, so um, I I just don't think, like baseball, I don't think it's over till the last man's out. Yeah. A lot of us were thinking, well, maybe we're looking at someone who could potentially be the vice president on that stage. But that's not right because there's so much bad blood between so many of them, with the exception of the guy who dropped out, Tim Scott, who I think would theoretically be a very smart vice presidential choice for Trump. And they've not had they, they have not had a blood feud as he has with everyone else on that stage. I guess he and Vivek have not had a blood feud, but I don't I don't think Vivek is serious enough to be a vice presidential candidate. There are others you could choose from who aren't on that stage. There was an interesting story <clears throat> two days ago <coughs> in Politico by Jonathan Martin, who's um, quite a well-known reporter in Washington, D.C., and he interviewed uh, tens of White House officials and DNC uh, officials, and they all said the same thing, which is none of them want Joe Biden to run again, but Joe Biden is ardent that he's running again. Joe Biden, um, which is not unusual for someone in a state of decline to not kind of see reality or kind of see even your own decline, right? Someone in a state of decline never can admit to their decline, not at this level or beyond. Maybe at the very earliest of stages, you might say, well, I feel like I'm missing a few steps. He, he's beyond that at this point. It really almost, I mean, I, I don't know who can do this, who can make this happen, the replacement of Joe Biden. One would think his wife. Surely you yeah. would think she, yeah. she could do that. Yeah. Um, uh, it, but it'll is, be odd if he's a stubborn horse going all the way, galloping all the way to the command. It'll be odd. It will be odd. Uh, and I think we're in for that. I think mm. that is what's going to happen, that he's going to try to hang in. I guess my view of it is that watching through history, the addiction yeah. of yeah. the left— yeah. Maybe the right as well, but certainly of the left to power and the importance they attach to it and the fact that they fully grasp and thoroughly understand that there is so much power in the White House and in so many people all the way around it. It's not just uh, one man or just the White House. It's massive power to control the direction of the country. And they want so desperately to change America and they're and they are succeeding at such a stunning pace. 
my hunch is they'll figure out how to get him out. How? I, mean, I don't know. I mean, I think he could be uh, impeached overnight for bribery or corruption. His cabinet could vote. Uh, absolutely. Uh, I, I, mean, I think several of his cabinet members could be. I think the attorney general could be impeached. Yeah. Uh, I think the, obviously Mr. Mayorkas could be impeached. I mean, and if if they and by they, I mean uh, the real powers uh, in the Democratic Party decide, as I think they are currently deciding, that he's a liability, i.e., that they can't win, they can't retain power with him in with him run the candidate. They'll figure out how to do it, and you, they you, will do it, and it won't. They'll figure out, and it may well be extra legal, uh, but they will figure out how to do it. You hear, you know, you see their their brain trust already coming out and and. Making it clear who is the guy that spoke out this weekend. Yeah, David Axelrod, David Axelrod uh, who right. speaks for the Obama wing. Yep, right. and the Obama wing is— It's kind of like when George H.W. Bush would call on Brent Scowcroft to write an op-ed, right? <laughs> got, right, yep. right, right, right. Yep. <laughs> so I just—the uh, uh, power is so great, and their addiction to it is so strong, and their disregard—I mean, they have clearly uh, uh, weaponized— uh, the Department of Justice and the FBI completely and the Treasury Department and now the Department of Homeland Security. I mean, Mayorkas is a joke. Nobody could believe what that guy says out loud or how he says, oh, the border's under control. A third grader can see that that's a lie. But they're there. The powers that be in the Democratic Party disregard or, or disregard for uh the nation and its laws is so stunning yeah. that if they want him gone, I figure they get him gone. And I think they know they have to do it late. Uh, I kind of I, I fear it's Michelle Obama mm. because the nation has shown it would go for her. Yeah. Uh, I think I, th- I think that's who we are as a nation. We kind of like nice people. And she comes across as a nice person. Yeah. And she appears to be certain, you know. She, well, she's married to Barack. Of course she's competent. I just wonder if she likes the heat. And She might not. She, she might not even want the job. But if the Democratic Party decides, you know. We can make you president. We've pulled your number. Yeah. yeah. Hard and she'd to. be the first woman and the first black a president? Yeah. Wow. Yeah. It would be a hard temptation to uh, dismiss. John Shattuck and I will be right back. Welcome back to the Seth Liebson Joe, Con- uh, Joe Show. Congressman John Shattig is my guest. It would be a conceit if I didn't mention the book on the table. Young David uh, has taken my um, – I was at this great bookstore, this great used bookstore on Indian School a couple weeks ago with a, with a mutual friend of ours, Hugh Hallman. And um, looking at me right on the desk as if it was meant to be was a book by your daddy, What Happened to Goldwater? And it was a signed copy, as you can see. It says, with best wishes, Stephen Shattig. And uh, I bought it for $20, give you a sense of inflation. It there sells, you go. I think the cover says it sells for five ninety five. dollars So uh, I, it was a great book. It is a great book. If you want to know about the 1964 campaign, this has it. So young David has been reading it since I finished it, and uh, it's encouraged him. He said to me, Seth, 
uh, I'll let him pose the question to you. Uh, I'll just repeat it on his behalf. He said, how do I become a convention delegate? (laughs) 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 Your daddy's works have now worked down to three generations here. Well, there's some great writing in here, John. Uh, He's a great writer. I I found this uh, unique paragraph, and I hope you don't mind if I read it out. Go ahead. Page 132, for those of you that have the book at the home. (laughs) (laughs) To be a delegate to a national political convention, to be a participant in the making of history, to wear an official badge and display the colors of your leader is raw meat, rich enough to compensate for all the tedious meetings back home, the neighborhood canvassing, the laborers in the precincts. But only the naive among the delegates and the deliberate pretenders among the commentators and and columnists hold to the notion that the delegate's task is to consider the candidates. (laughs) (laughs) It's a little different now. Um, And that part isn't, but becoming a delegate's a little different now. Uh, I told him he needs to start uh, by becoming an appointed or running for precinct committeeman, yeah? Yeah, I think he might have to be a... Well, yeah, you do. Has to be a, an elected precinct committeeman. Uh, I don't to be a national to be a delegate. Well, you have to be. Yeah, it's. I don't know. Maybe yeah, the, not. The rules are. Each party, I think, would have their own. Yeah, rules. but he's got to start as a PC. Yep. So we're working on that Good. right now, uh, and we're getting him involved. I'm, and, I'm yeah. Go part ahead. of an organization that uh, Republicans are putting together right now to try to uh, recruit. Uh, more and more and more PCs because we need them. Yeah. The we only problem is his LD is, stock full, is chock full of them. Well, that's the way it happens. Yeah. So yeah. you got a campaign. Have to move. We may have to, yeah, <laughs> we, have to, we may have to take one out so you can be appointed. First time I ran, yeah. my precinct was chock full and I lost. Oh. <laughs> I never lost a race for the U.S. House, but I managed to lose a race for precinct committee. Oh, my goodness gracious. <laughs> no profit. That was years before, but. First time I was a precinct committeeman, I was 19 years old, and uh, I was a Democrat, and the chair of my PC was, uh, the chair of my LD was Sam Goddard. Oh. Uh, Sam Goddard, yeah, old man Goddard. He he would show yeah. up at every meeting. My dad was a Democrat when he moved to Arizona. He so, was. So, yeah, the, the history of being a Democrat and changing to Republican is uh, long and story. My dad said there were no Ronald Demo- Reagan. Yeah, that's right. My daddy said there were no who was moved here in the 30s. He said there were no Republicans until air conditioning. <laughs> is, that, is, that, is that about right? <laughs> it's is about right. Yeah. <laughs> there were a few. My dad ran Carl Hayden's campaign. That's right. When there was no Republican. Yeah, yeah that's so, right. Yeah, that's from what right. I read in the book, it was uh, Democrats outnumbered Republicans yeah. nine to one. Or nine something to one. Like that. And, yep. and that's when Goldwater ran his one his Senate seat. Yeah. Well, it raises an interesting question for our politics today. It's a question that the book brought up in my mind, John, because we're going through this. Uh, Lori Roberts had a column the other day. We're going through this thing right now where we have a lot of moderate Republicans or a lot of liberal Republicans who can't seem to bring themselves to—well, they're tempted by independents. Sometimes they're tempted by Democrats. They can't bring themselves to vote for a Republican who is too far to the right, as they say, or just not their flavor of Republican. And it dawned on me that Barry Goldwater's candidacies have taught a couple of lessons when he ran for president— you know, there were there was a lot of that in 1964. A lot of Republicans denounced him, the Scrantons, the Rockefellers, the Romneys. They denounced him, and it, it carried out through the election for far too many. I, I was looking up the numbers. Goldwater got 7 million fewer votes in 1964 than Richard Nixon did in 1960. Exit polling was, at best, 
in those days rudimentary. So it's hard to know how many Republicans actually voted for Johnson or didn't vote for Goldwater. But he ended up getting 7 million fewer votes than Richard Nixon nonetheless. And it dawns on me, no matter what kind of Republican you are, certainly you would look at the Johnson years, 1964 to 1969, as years that have left us with um, really almost everything every Republican would argue against, which is an entrenched welfare welfare state, an expanded bureaucracy, an inability really to touch the budget because of growing concerns that come out of these programs you cannot touch because there must fund programs that have been ever-growing. The Great Society, uh, to, to, to just take one aspect of what the Goldwater loss yielded to the problems every Republican still complains about today. And I wonder what it would be like to go back to those 1964 Republicans who couldn't bring themselves to vote for Goldwater and ask how that worked out for them. <laughs> but it's a message for Republicans today. It is a huge message for Republicans today. Uh, the reality is a couple different things. Number one, lots of activist Republicans believe that all elections are decided on philosophy. Um, the Trump followers right now who are most intense think it's all about philosophy. And the reality is it's almost has almost nothing to do with philosophy. Uh, and I think I've said this before. Lots of times people who get stoked up or or become exercised or suddenly discover the nation is in danger and decide to become active, they're the last to figure out that elections are decided by largely by human nature. Uh, I I found it stunning and, and encouraging that when we first got to Washington, the class of 1995 or the class of 94, the Newt Gingrich freshman, that Newt understood and Dick Armey understood, and they would repeat to us over and over again, they, meaning voters, have to know how much you care before they'll care how much you know. And um, it it actually works in, in two different ways. It works for the minimally involved who get all stoked up and think they can elect a candidate because he's a rock-solid conservative. But if he's an unlikable, unappealing rock-solid conservative, getting him elected is going to be extremely different. Uh, Look at Ronald Reagan versus, uh, you mentioned him the other day, the Republican who was run a million times and his sister was deeply involved. Um, Pat Buchanan. Pat Buchanan. Yeah. Yeah. Buchanan's not a likable guy. Uh, Ronald Reagan was likable by anybody, Republican, Democrat. So the first thing you have to do is figure out, you know, is your candidate likable? Not whether or not they have the right philosophy. And then you got to look at, okay, if they and, and, and having the right philosophy for some of us, for many of us can make them likable. But Personality counts so much, and and it's why Trump is such a disaster and such a problem for himself. Let me let me pick up on that when we come right back. John Shattuck and I will be right back. Welcome back to the Seth Leibson Show. Con- Congressman John Shattuck is my guest. John, uh, to the points you were talking about about Republicans in a primary race, and so much of it having to do with personality. 
maybe I'm too romantic. I, you know, I just, I just, I just disdain the notion that people vote on that when it comes to what the stakes are, and the stakes are higher now than they've been before. Barry Goldwater in 1960 said the Democratic Party was running a blueprint for socialism. A blueprint would be a draft. And it was. And it was. It's not a draft anymore. No. It's active. They've implemented two-thirds of it. Yes, pretty much. And they support candidates who declare themselves Absolutely. Shocking. It's shocking. Um, So I don't, you know, if if I could talk to these kinds of Republicans, I would say get over the personality issue. You have a country to save. Because that shoe is often on the other foot when when the more moderate candidate wins in a primary and the harder right or the more conservative Republicans don't get their guy or gal in, they roll up their sleeves and go to work. They get it. The harder right, the more conservatives seem to be more mature about this sort of thing in a sense than the moderate or the liberal Republicans do when they don't get their person and maybe maybe that's why they're moderate or liberals. Maybe they just don't care about the principles as much. Maybe. I, I mean, it's hard to respond to that, except that I think it is in some ways so uh, stunningly off. The harder— You don't disagree with the premise, though, do you? Uh, well, yeah, okay. state the premise again. <laughs> the premise being that when two Republicans are in a primary and the conservative— one wins. The liberal disappointed Republicans tend not to go all out and roll up their Absolutely. sleeves and go to work. Yep. It's not true the other way around. Nope. Okay. That's the premise. The hardcore conservatives, of course, get it that more is at stake. Um, the nation today is stunningly different than the nation the founders founded and the principles they founded it on. So so thinking conservatives understand that, OK, uh, the hardcore conservative lost, uh, but uh, better to have a, a moderate Republican than to have a Democrat who's openly pro-socialism uh, or openly anti-individual responsibility. Um, but the problem is, and this is the point I tried to make earlier, is lots of conservatives aren't thinking conservatives. I think I've said this by pointing out, I discovered when I got to Washington that very few Republicans in Congress understood the conservative philosophy. Mm-hmm. They'd, they'd, they'd say, oh, lower taxes and less government. But if you pressed them on why, or if a bill came up that expanded government, but its defenders had some good excuse, heck, you, you, you watch Republicans all day long introduce bills that would ultimately cost more money, mean, meaning for the left, higher taxes, would ultimately expand the federal bureaucracy. Heck, Republicans push through the entire education department without a word in the Constitution about education. So, so what I would say is there's a distinction between the thinking Republicans who understand the philosophy deeply and kind of the overnight, uh, I got to get involved. And many of the overnight, I got to get involved, don't even understand why they're conservatives or why they think they're conservatives. On the other hand, on the left, none of those, those are all nuances. They don't care about what they care about. They care about one thing, power. 
and they get one tactic. Give stuff away to get power. You know, look at where we are today. Look at every shutdown fight I was in. Nobody could rationally defend what the Democrats were doing, except if you understood we can get more votes with, as a friend of mine once said, with candy bars uh, than we can with broccoli. And that's what the fight comes down to. Um, But the other point, and I did want to say that there are two sides to this. Lots of times moderate Republicans are uh, guided by their social precinct or their social instincts. And the left paints conservatives as embarrassing, overcharacterizing or mischaracterizing their positions and making them embarrassing. And so you get moderate Republicans who say, oh, I could never vote for that right winger he's a or she's a right winger and and they pick the most extreme thing they ever said and unfortunately we play into their hands our u.s senate candidate last time around we've talked about this made statements in the primary about abortion that no rational person would be persuaded by they were just offensive let me pick that up because it wasn't beyond it wasn't just that but then yes it's that and more We'll, we'll come right back Welcome back to the Seth Leibson Show. Congressman John Shattig is my guest. Um, Congressman, yes. But that's the mark of a conservative, too. As you were saying, there was a primary candidate last go-round who said things in the primary that just wouldn't wash in the general. That's the mark of a conservative um, or at least a philosophically coherent candidate. You don't have to be a conservative. I wish you were a conservative. You don't have to be a conservative to run as a Republican. I think the Republican Party is inherently conservative, but okay, open to a discussion and a debate. But if at least you're philosophically coherent, you don't have to worry about what you say in the primary and take it into the general. If there's a philosophical coherence, I'm going to guess, for example, and I don't know if if you had uh, tough primary fights or not, but I'm going to guess that you didn't because you are a philosophical uh, 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 politician, elected leader, conservative, any number of those things. You've thought deeply about these issues. You were steeped in them when you ran. I'm going to guess you didn't have to trim from primary to general. And And I hate the idea of this is what we will say in the primary and then we'll pivot. I hate that. I agree with you. I hate it. And I don't think candidates should do it. Um, I think they should be consistent in both the primary and the general, but that means they have to be more disciplined, harder working, more articulate, uh, and they have to be willing to put in the work to explain why the Republican philosophy is better or why the conservative philosophy is better, and not just better for the rich, which is what the Democrats uh, assert, a bald-faced lie, but but better for everybody. Look at black America today. They're considering, they're on the brink, I hope, of abandoning the Democrat Party because Trump was so much better for them. And, and so lots of, un- unfortunately, God made humans lazy. And so lots of people who run as Republicans think, Oh, well, uh, I've got a campaign to the middle in the or, or to the right in the primary and to the middle in the general, because that's easier than understanding the philosophy and explaining it to people. And you're right. I mean, uh, 
I had to go deep in in, in explaining it. Um, I once uh, a whole group of my male supporters came to me and said, "John, we just want you to make one change," and we're really ha- we're here on your on behalf of your uh, constituents who are women, all of our wives. They just want you to change your position on pro life. And I thought about it, and I said, well, would you get them together in an event? And they said, yeah. And so I got them all together, and I first, uh, I think I told you, I explained that you, the reason why I was pro-life, because a woman member of Congress had said to me, when you're talking to people that are women or to people that disagree with you, you are better off to explain why you believe what you believe, because then they'll at least recognize You've thought it through. It's not just, uh, uh, you know, rote. Uh, But the second thing is I I said to him, if I changed my position on abortion for you right here tonight, what issue could you trust me on in the future? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And the room went dead silent. And then he suddenly discovered, well, if he changed his position on that, would he change his position on foreign policy or on taxes or on the size of government or on... Uh, government running our lives, you know, he would just be a politician. And yeah. Yeah. That, that was unacceptable. And, and it 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 brought them and the women and the wives and their husbands to a dead stop. Yeah, I it was it just did. holy. I don't know if you can say this. He's right. If he change, if he'll change on yeah, this one. Got to bleep that out. How do we get him to? <laughs> how, 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 how do we get him to stick to his position on banking or uh, whatever it is? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, speaking of stick to his position on banking. Yeah. Speaking of um, speaking of a position that people seem to be more and more united on on our side of the aisle um, is concern about China. Joe Biden is in California today meeting with Xi Jinping. California cleans up itself you know, changes its diapers, speaking of <laughs> uh, some because of a foreign dignitary coming or other foreign dignitaries coming can't do it for its own citizens but does it for foreign dignitaries when it think I, I i in any event you see this sea of chinese flags to greet them no no american flags and joe biden going to xi jinping with what i can only call as anxious propitiation and i gotta tell you john um brezhnev would never have been treated like this I think it's humiliating. And this is a maybe bigger threat. Uh, I think it's humiliating. Yeah. Uh, humiliating. America doesn't. America is groveling. Uh, it groveled two presidents ago, and it's groveling now. And it may be groveling more because they're a bigger threat. They've gotten stronger and stronger. And Xi Jinping, you know, makes no attempt to conceal what he wants and and his intent to go get it. And somehow the appeasement uh, lobby or the appeasement mindset has taken over the country. And, and I, that's one of the worst things that, that Biden represents. And, and he's projecting it to the world. Look at what he did to get out of Afghanistan. The, the world's greatest power um, try to, tries to sneak out of Afghanistan in the, essentially in the middle of the night without regard to any consequences or planning. It's just it was, it's awful. Yeah. Yeah. It's inexcusable, and it, it will do nothing but lead us to more problems, Interesting. a more dangerous world. You don't see students from Cal State San Francisco or San Francisco State University 
protesting the president of this meeting for China's repression and genocide of Muslims. It's kind of interesting. <laughs> they, they seem to only do that with one group. They seem to only do that with one group. Isn't that interesting? Because the repression of Muslims by China is far worse than any repression of Muslims I can think of probably going back to the 1980s. That's not how they have yeah, been doesn't trained. doesn't work that way. Yeah. No, they've been trained to see the world from the perspective of their leftist professors yeah. and to think, oh, they've got it right, this evil, evil Israel, this, you know, we can't put up with this. Well, you know, it does show you something about the students' commitments to saying we're not anti-Israel, we're just pro-Palestinian, we're just pro-Arab rights. Well, if they were pro-Muslim, they'd have something to say about this. Because there is a violator here. There is a genocidal genocidal, uh, country here, and um, and not a peep, not a peep. it not goes, from the State Department, not from the staffers in Congress, not from the students at the universities. I mean, it goes all the way back. To, tr- to indoctrinate somebody takes decades, and that's what our education system has been doing. Um, and that, but the people who jump in overnight, uh, yeah, they're, they, they get it there for the right team, but they can't really tell you why. No. They haven't figured it out. No. No. They just, they, yeah. Well done, John Shattuck. I, it's good to have you back, sir. <laughs> Thanks for being with us. Fun to be here. Okay, brother. I'll be back with a final comment. Welcome back to the Seth Liebson Show, portions of which have been brought to you by Y-Refi. Great company. Great corporate citizens. Great company to invest with. They offer a secure investment. It actually helps people. And you can earn up to a 10.25% fixed rate of return, and it's not correlated to the stock market or the Federal Reserve. It's got a ton of flexibility where you are in control. You can turn your income on or off. You can compound it. There is no attack on principle. If you ever need your money back, you get your monthly statement with no surprises. There are absolutely no fees, and it is a secure, collateralized portfolio. Check them out at investyrefi.com. That's invest, the letter Y, then refy.com, or call them at 888-YREFI24. Folks all over the country are earning a, earning a high fixed interest rate of return with YREFI. They don't care about what happens with the stock market or the Federal Reserve because it's not tied to it or them. And with YREFI, you can do well by doing good. Again, check them out, investyrefi.com. That's invest, the letter Y, then refy.com, or 888-YREFI-24, 888-YREFI-24. I am um, encircelled by what's going on on our campuses and has been for some time, including last night at ASU, as we discussed earlier, what's been going on elsewhere, and what hasn't been going on with uh, the visit of uh, Xi Jinping, the head of China who is um, presiding over the, you know, the greatest threat to freedom in the world through his country and through um, his country's constitution, which declares itself several times dedicated to Marxist-Leninism, Maoism, and the obvious repression of minorities, particularly religious minorities, and the genocide of them, and nothing— nothing from the campuses. William Buckley wrote in the late 50s, the aims of education are to forward knowledge and right conduct at the expense of some points of view, 
The educated man, Russell Kirk has trenchantly pointed out, is the man who has come to learn how to apprehend ethical norms by intellectual means. He has come to know, in a word, what is right conduct and why one should conduct oneself rightly. He has come to know this by understanding the rational base for such conduct. As long as universities take the position that they will not affirm one idea over another, the faculty and officials of a center of humane learning are saying that they do know, do not know what right conduct is. That was the 50s relativism has taken hold. Well, universities have moved far beyond relativism. They've moved to one side, one side of the freedom tyranny debate, one side on the fulcrum, on the balance, on the scale, as between Marxist, Leninism, Maoism, and Western democracy and Republican form of government. And it ain't the right one. That's what relativism leads you to, the wrong side. For David Dahl and Mr. Bill and Terry, I'm Seth Leibson. God bless you all. Until tomorrow, class dismissed. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.